Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Across the country, museums are rethinking how they can be more welcoming and accessible. For example, many institutions are examining how they greet the public and how they got to claim certain artifacts. This time last week, we talked about this shift, plus the power of arts and curation, especially in turbulent moments in history. You can find our conversation with Faisal Sala, who's the founder and director of Palestine Museum U.S. in Woodbridge at ctpublic.org slash where we live. It's the first museum in the United States centering Palestinian arts and culture with a mission of humanizing the Palestinian people. And coming up, we'll spend some time at the Museum of Jewish Civilization, a teaching museum at the University of Hartford, where artifacts and photography help tell the story of Jewish life in America. But first, back with us to continue this conversation around how museums can foster discovery, dialogue, and healing is Dr. Makushla Robinson. She's an assistant professor in residence and the director of the Contemporary Art Galleries at the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much, Makushla, for joining us again. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. Of course. And for our listeners, let us know what role do museums play in your community. Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Makushla, can you describe exactly how teaching museums work? Well, I can try. <laughs> I try away. The, the teaching museum is a, a, an interesting subcategory of the idea of the museum as a whole, and they are typically located on educational in educational contexts on campuses. And I do like to think that all museums are teaching museums in one way or another. The difference is really that a, a museum, uh, like say the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, has a broad public, and it has with built into it the structure of an education department who focus specifically on pedagogical engagement with the space and exhibition specific programming uh but they are you know that's separate from curatorial labor whereas museums like the museum at the university of connecticut uh the benton museum there they have a focus on working with students in a way that kind of really fuses together the processes and structures of the museum with the teaching and learning experience if that makes sense. Absolutely. And and with the space that you work in, you know, can you tell us about the gallery that you oversee? Would you consider that as a teaching museum? Well, I wouldn't really consider it a museum, to be honest. So the the University of Connecticut has a variety of galleries, venues, and museum spaces. I just mentioned the Benton. They're a collecting institution and students go in and work on curatorial projects and archive projects in there. The student work displayed in there. We also have the Ballard Institute, which is an incredible puppetry museum that's built into the educational puppetry program at UConn. I run the Contemporary Art Galleries, which is actually nested within the Department of Art and Art History. And we are 
I don't consider us a museum primarily because we don't have a collection. So from the outside, that might seem kind of inside baseball. It's a little bit of an arcane distinction, but it really is a very different politics and practice. The contemporary art galleries, we show work by contemporary artists who come in and do project-specific exhibitions. We don't acquire their work um, or store their work or display things that we have in storage in relation to each other. So it changes the politics somewhat. We don't have an archive that students dip into and display. Instead, I work with living artists who I think engage with ideas that are really relevant to not just the students who are working in the Department of Art and Art History, but also to the connecting what they do to the wider world. So we do about four exhibitions a year. Each one is usually a new body of work by an artist. You know, we've had artists from Australia, artists from Indonesia, artists from New York, artists from Rhode Island, and they come in and they they bring their own work and they respond to the space. And they do a lot of engagement with the students in the space. They do studio visits with our MFA candidates and class visits and tours. But it's it's a slightly different thing because it's also about professional practice and it's about the artists who are planning on graduating from our program, getting that kind of exposure to and practice with artists who are out in the world and we're trying to prepare them for what it means to live and be as an artist um, and to see the different ways that artists can realise their practices in in space, in a spatialized way, in the gallery space. Well, so I have two questions from from what you just described. Can you talk about your decision on focusing on living artists in your in your museum? Because I think that's really interesting with with artists coming in and responding to the space versus saying, "Oh, here's the space, and you know, put your stuff in there uh, without any yeah. thought." So, can you talk about that? And then I want to I want to ask too, you know, the the role that students play in this as well. Right, I am a contemporary art curator and. I've worked with collections. I should say that. I have a, a deep history with collections. When I was in Australia, I worked uh, really managing the collections process at the museum that I was at there. So I feel that I understand collections. But to me, the most interesting thing is when a living artist can treat both a space and a collection, if they have access to it, as a kind of laboratory space. And I'm very uninterested in an artist coming in with a bunch of static objects that they just put on the wall and walk away. I'm interested in the way that artists have the capacity to transform space. So we do a lot with our shows. We always paint the gallery different colours to suit the work. We'll do whatever we can um, on what is frankly a very small budget um, <laughs> to, to be transformative in the space and I'm really interested in working with artists who innovate and do things in different ways. So in the past, I've shown artists, artists have had pop-up projects in the offices around different buildings. Um, artists have, I've worked with artists who've done walking tours as their artwork or different kinds of interventions that maybe disrupt what we think of as the sanctity of the museum or gallery space. Mm. Um, and in relation to collections, I mean, we don't have a collection to work with, but I, artists bring collections in there. Our current exhibition, you know, most of what is on display in this exhibition is actually archival photography that the artist herself has collected and only a very small portion of what's on display are photographs that she has taken herself. So she 
she kind of brings the collection with her in an interesting way and brings an archive that's a privately accumulated archive, which then can do things that that institutional archives can't do, you know. So with this sort of revolving space too, and it's so it's so living and and not static as you as you mentioned, you know, are there any student reactions or questions that that you've been surprised by when they are witnessing this process? Always. <laughs> I think that a lot of the time, um, artists, we have a vision of art as creating work in this cloistered, sequestered, beautiful studio space, and that the work of the artist really happens in a room somewhere with, you know, hopefully beautiful natural light, and it's very romantic, and they're creating objects, and then the objects get sent out into the wild, and that's that's no, it's no longer in their control. I think what surprises students most is when the artist comes in and the object honestly completely changes in the space. Like the reality of curating, and this is why I think of that interface between a curator and a student body and the idea of the teaching museum or the teaching gallery as a laboratory, is because the object is not the same from the studio where it was made into the space where it's displayed the things that happen in that space, like they're really enmeshed and they change each other all the time. What you put one work adjacent to, how close or far away it is from the nearest work, will change the things that that object does or says. The way that you light it, the colour of the wall, the quality of the sound, if there's a sound piece near it, the language that you build around it when you write a wall label. All of these things as far as I'm concerned, the work is not the work until it's on the wall being encountered by a viewer. So I think what surprises students the most when they work with me is how much I'm just constantly telling them, I'm sorry, your work is not finished yet because mm-hmm. it hasn't been installed. Um, it doesn't. Your work doesn't end at the studio door. Your work has to be constantly adapting and changing and shifting in space. And a gallery space is itself an artwork. It's an installation, you know. Right. It rearranges and changes and can profoundly, for better or worse, manipulate and shift what the original object does. And what's powerful about that is also revealing that objects don't exist in isolation as discrete, singular, static entities. They are really... You know, the objects teach you and they constantly teach you and they're constantly being taught. There is this liveliness to the way that things live in an exhibition space. And you can you can do that with a living artist too because then they have the capacity to respond to what's changing in the space and reimagine the object as they go. Like it's a, a collaborative and negotiative that is not a word, but a negotiative space. It's a word now. <laughs> it is a word now. I was just going to say, and and because we, you know, we've been talking about students. You know, your students who are who are familiar with the museum space and and who are there for very specific reasons. And we're going to hear from Amy Weiss later, who directs the University of Hartford's Museum of Jewish Civilization, and she spoke about some of the the built-in and maybe sort of unfair expectations that we have around going to museums and how comfortable any students could be with that experience. Because so based on a recent survey from uh, CT Humanities, 
they found that only 26% of residents said they'd visit a museum in the last two years. So can you touch on some of these expectations and misconceptions that museums may have? Because they could have a reputation of not being the most friendly or accessible place. And I I frankly don't think that they always are. There's Mm -hmm. certainly a lot to be said for the inbuilt authoritative structures of museums. It's an interesting challenge. And in some ways, you know, I think contemporary artists have done a lot to try to shift that over the years. But I've also experienced times where an attempt to shift the authoritative, intimidating quality of a space has really backfired and really intimidated viewers in a different way. Um, You know, the architecture of a museum space, I think of it as a choreographic regime. A museum space does often make people feel small. And it makes people feel too loud and too boisterous. I don't know if you've had this experience, but like, you know, when you enter into the space, right. people's body language changes. Mm-hmm. People become, I think, disciplined in a way that's quite interesting. And you can talk about the architecture of a space and the atmospherics um, and the sort of sonic regime that they put in place as a way of disciplining the viewer, which can be a really unpleasant and difficult experience, I think a lot of people still feel like they can't be themselves in that space. But what the space needs to be also probably shifts with what's on display in the space and what the topic of the exhibition is. You know, like we're kind of, as bodies, we are collaborating in just how we move around an exhibition with the way that the exhibition registers for everyone in the space. So... There is this very hierarchical structure that museums have not shaken off. And there have been a lot of attempts to shake it off, and some of them have worked really, really well. An interesting example, I curated quite a few years ago, before I lived in the States, I was tasked with curating a project by Tino Segal, who works with movement and He's a very complex artist, so I'm not going to try and sum it all up here. But we basically had a version of his work, this is so contemporary, in the vestibule entryway of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, where I was a curator of contemporary international art. And in this piece, a bunch of interpreters, he calls them, who were dressed as our museum security guards, would target people coming into the museum and they would leap up and dance around them shouting, this is so contemporary, contemporary, contemporary. Um, And it was very unexpected and for quite a few people actually quite shocking. And it really presented an interesting case study for me in how your entry into a museum space that's often so kind of quiet and respectful and it's like going to church, it's very authoritative, Um, there's a lot of comportment involved. To have that disrupted, it really disrupted the entire museum. It changed the way that people moved around the museum for the whole five stories of the the museum space. I'm pretty sure that we had an increase in damages to other artworks (laughs) during that time, during the three weeks that that was on display, which is a really just the the sort of sense of rupture and noise and boisterousness. Right. The shift in how people approach the space. Right. The disruption almost led to disruption in some ways. And and it's so interesting because as you're describing it, I can I can see myself and feel myself being in certain spaces in certain museums where I do feel that sort of authoritative 
burden that falls on you when you walk into a very quiet space. And I'm also wondering if the museum curators play a role too, because I remember going to a museum recently um, where they actually just started talking to you. Um, not to say that they're not friendly, but they, this one in particular was like super into it, uh, super friendly. You know, we're asking you know where we're from and what we're here for and all that jazz. And, and that proceeded to start a conversation about the art in the room versus in certain museums, you you just see the curators kind of just like, you know, standing there making sure you're not touching the art. So, mm-hmm. so those are different spaces and different museums, but it's just so interesting that it's the way that you're, you, uh, you're describing it. It's so true. Like, I think it really depends on the space. And, and so how do you talk to students about, about these expectations and, and how have you been able to help your students sort of understand the perception of, of museums? Well, hmm, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have a simple answer. I hope that I have been able to reveal to my students the messiness and complexity behind the edifice of the museum space. I think that the more transparent we are, I'm a huge believer in transparency as a political practice. I think it's very, very easy to see a museum space as this kind of antique, monolithic, unchanging perfectly presented static thing and when you know more about it even if it kind of breaks your heart because you know I'm an expert at breaking my students hearts and shattering their illusions about all the romantic notions we have about art and artists um there's there's still this this important sense of agency that comes with knowing that things are more messy than they are and that there's a thousand tiny decisions that shape how you encounter the work and that could be changed that it's actually flexible and malleable and i really really try to teach when i do any kind of museum studies from the place of the disruptor um from the idea of of critique as a kind of playful entry point into what the museum is and does and it's you know i like to describe it as loving critique i love museum spaces They've really been a haven for me throughout my life. But there's there's a lot that's built into that that has to do with class and expectations and who feels welcome and who doesn't feel welcome. The more that we can chip away at the edifice and the monolithic stature of the museum, the more flexible we're going to make those spaces and the more people's stories we can tell and engage effectively but we have to be willing to undo some of the hierarchy and authority that gets attached to that. Well, and that's, that's hard work. That's painful. Right. I cannot imagine being in that space trying to figure out all that specificity with sensitivity. Um, but you mentioning this as a space to tell people's stories. We mentioned Amy Wise at the Museum of Jewish Civilization earlier. So we'll also hear from her shortly about the museum's decision to center individual people and their stories using photography and artifacts to do so. So she explains that this is particularly important for museums charged with a very specific historical topic. So, Makushla, can you talk about that approach, you know, sort of of narrative over numbers and like stories over factoids, say? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I think it, it is so important. I think I said last week, you know, art and poetry can do this thing. They can convey the lived experience and that that's such an important role that that they have to play in our lives, art, poetry, writing, novels, all kinds of things. <clears throat> and they they really speak to your lived experience. And so they have an important role to play in building empathy 
in that way. And they can be profoundly political in ways that feel a lot less sharp-edged than politics proper, should we call it. I think it's we have to be very careful about the question of numbers and the way that that gets played out. Um, you know, I think there are facts in that have to be taken into account in terms of the scale of certain kinds of devastation, especially when you're dealing with conflict zones and war zones and um, stories of genocide. You know, there's there's it's important to hold both, I would say, and to to think about what what all of those things mean rather than choosing one over the other as the primary site of political identification. But the story of the individual and their path through conflict or through a certain kind of identity or cultural experience is a soft way and a human way into understanding the meaning of of larger conflict zones and, and larger forms of historical violence. And it's very, very important that museums use the tools that they have at hand to really bring home to the viewer what that actually means, what it means to imagine yourself into a different space and to imagine, yeah, how how each life is lived as having a, a gravity and a weight and a worthiness um, that is the equivalent of any other life that we really foreground the the significance of individuals' lives without losing sight of how they are part of this larger narrative and, yeah, and, without I mean, losing the humanity of it but and right. without losing the politics of it either. I'm very, you know, they are enmeshed. I, well, yeah, it's, I was going to say with, with that enmeshness too, right, everything is so connected with each other and, and especially with everything that you just shared. Can you also speak on how art versus artifacts function in museums? Mm. It's such an interesting definition and it's very, very hard to precisely cut artifact away from artwork. I think that we tend to think about the artifact as something that has historical value that wasn't necessarily designed with intention and that the artwork has intention behind it. But again, that's much messier when you actually get into looking at objects um, and looking at what they do in spaces. I'm thinking about a contemporary artist, Gala Porath Kim, who has a piece at MoMA at the moment called Mediating with the Rain, where she worked at the Peabody Essex Museum on artifacts from a particular Indigenous site, and she created all these intricate, beautiful technical drawings, and they're just tiny fragments of cloth. And part of that is, in some ways, like it feels very traditional. It feels like an artist going and studying an artifact and then making an artwork that's an intentional recreation of the artifact. But she also took it further and, as part of the work, proposed actually returning those pieces of cloth to their original site and accepting their inevitable decay in that process and talked about the capacity of the artist to intervene in the object status as artifact and wrest it out of that space because it is also something that has its own life and that its its stasis within the museum is actually not true to the original ten- intention of the object. So a lot of the time artists work with artifacts and I think that's when artifacts can come to to have a life 
that's maybe different than how they tend to be used in museums. It also makes me think about these distinctions, you know, if you read someone like A.L. Weissman and forensic architecture and his practice around sort of taking his architectural practice to think about prosecuting war crimes. And he talks a lot about the evidentiary quality of certain objects. So we have this sort of like slippery continuum between evidence, artifact, artwork, and there's a lot that can actually slip between all of them there. There's kind of questions about preservation and the ethics of preserving the artifact at all costs, and we have to ask what that cost is. There's questions about intention and the story the artifact tells because where you place it in the museum, what language you put around it, what audiences are going to come through, you know, how it's lit, whether it's in a case or not, all of those things are going to change the kind of story that it tells. Um, and the question of of intention and media and who makes it, it's really, it's really a lot messier than I think we like to think. We like the neat category of an artwork being something new, but a lot of artists work with artifacts and work with attempts to reanimate them in different ways or enact processes of restitution as the artwork. And that really speaks more to the idea that the artist can engage with the material world almost as a mode of collaboration and that the materiality of the world around them already has things to say and the artist is responding to and engaging with and choosing what to draw out about that. Right. And I hate to ask you to summarize this next answer, but we only have a couple minutes left. But with especially building on what you just shared, too, you know, I want to ask, how are both of these approaches sort of centering personal narratives and artifacts, especially with the example that you just provided, you know, helpful in relaying really dense histories? Um, Amy, for example, um, she mentioned that this can be really helpful simply in disputing Holocaust denial. And this gets back to your point about evidentially support and your point that museums are also inherently political. So got about two minutes here. Um, how are these approaches helpful in relaying really dense histories? I mean, I think it's important to always be like these approaches can be helpful in relaying those dense histories. They're not necessarily inherently helpful. They do something and we need to be aware of what it is that they do. But there's something about the visceral quality of an object that can be really just powerful. I think about someone like Doris Salcedo, who, if, if you don't know her work, I encourage you to look at it. She's Colombian. She did many, many works where she enclosed the shoes and pieces of clothing of missing people, disappeared people in these little niches in the wall and kind of stitched them behind a translucent surface Hearing how many, the statistics of how many people have disappeared in Colombia during that decades long conflict and seeing like a shoe of someone who's been missing for that long, they do register differently. The embodiment, the sense of like a life lived, the weight of that body, the impression of that body in this, in the object of the shoe, the sense of something that may never be put on again. Those things, they have a visceral gut punch quality that can bring home the reality of the numbers. Another example that I think about a lot is the um, the museum in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and just the objects 
seeing what happened to objects in the nuclear blast. Like nothing, I'm a huge fan of language. I love language. Language has so much power and, and embodiment, but nothing really gets to what happens to a body in a nuclear blast, like seeing a bottle or some kind of object that we think of as fairly impermeable and how twisted and warped it became in that blast. Nothing can speak to the violence of that quite the way that just the material reality of something in front of us can. So I think that in those ways, like actually really sitting with the physicality of historical violences as an emotional embodied experience, that's the power that those objects have, whether they're artifacts or artworks or evidence. And, you know, they are used as evidence in international war crimes tribunals and this this whole history is sort of like the slippage between the legal, the aesthetic, and the narrative. These objects can travel across all of those contexts well, and they do different things. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Just hearing that gave us chills. You've been listening to UConn's Dr. Makushla Robinson. Thanks for being with us. We'll take you to the Museum of Jewish Civilization at the University of Hartford next. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're looking at how museums can act as places of discovery, dialogue, and healing. These spaces have long showcased history and culture, but today, they're taking things a step further and engaging with critical, often complex issues important to the communities they serve. The Museum of Jewish Civilization is one of the institutions doing just that. It's a teaching museum at the heart of the University of Hartford's campus, and it focuses on the stories of how Jewish people have lived. Our producer, Katie Pellico, recently spent an afternoon at the museum with its director, Amy Weiss. The Museum of Jewish Civilization is a small but mighty space. It's about 1,100 square feet in all, just inside the main library on the University of Hartford's campus. The museum is centered on the lives of Jewish people in America with a current focus on World War II and the Holocaust. Amy Weiss is the museum's director. She's also the director of the nearby Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and an assistant professor of Judaic Studies and History. So again, the Museum of Jewish Civilization is focusing on how Jews lived in a variety of moments, in a variety of ways, and highlighting that Jews are not a monolith, that they exist uh, and they have different opinions, political opinions, religious experiences. Some of them believe in God. Some of them don't. And so we like to, we can't tell it all, but we like to highlight 
as much as possible, a diversity of stories. The museum has two stories on display right now. One focuses on Holocaust survivors, the other on Jewish people who served in World War II. Both speak to the history of anti-Semitism globally. Right, this idea we're, we're focusing on highlighting the importance of democracy and focusing on combating fascism. And I think those are important messages in today's world. We're seeing current events with there's a rise of anti-Semitism. And I think this museum um, serves as a reminder of what can happen when that sort of hatred goes unchecked. And we want to educate individuals. And if they can come away with hearing from one individual, right, what they experience, just one individual, uh, that will go a long way in having empathy and having understanding of a topic that maybe people didn't know as much about before. And so to take these lessons with them and to take them out into the world and to think about what's going on and how we can have more um, empathy, compassion, and really understanding, right? This idea of education, it doesn't just happen in the museum walls. We're hoping that the education starts here, but it continues once the individuals and the students leave um, the museum. The museum engages a lot with local students. Nearby high schools often visit the museum and University of Hartford students helped curate the current exhibit honoring World War II veterans. On this wall, we have students in the modern Jewish history class that met in the spring of 2023 with Professor Ayala Brin. And they were tasked with going through oral histories of local Connecticut residents who fought in World War II. So what they did was for individuals who might not have the time to go through an entire oral history. right? And again, this is where we get to the idea of um, instead of large ideas, sometimes it's helpful to have a distillation, right? Really drilling down to specifics to get a better understanding of one person's experience. As you move a little deeper into the museum, there's a second series of biographies. Recent portraits and images of artifacts help tell the stories of people who survived the Holocaust and relocated to Connecticut. On the museum's website, you can hear them in their own words. Here's West Hartford's Ruth, or Tootie Goodman, sharing life lessons and her reflections in a 2016 interview. Ruth was born in Germany and survived the Holocaust. And I also go into, lately when I talk to them, no bullying, accepting each other, uh, because somebody believes something different, because somebody looks different, accept. Uh, and when you see that something is wrong, talk up, go to a teacher, go to a clergy person, go to your parents, talk up, don't let it go un, 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 unnoticed. It's not only the Jewish story of six million Jews being killed, it's the genocides going on all over, whether it's uh, Africa, whether it's uh, Armenia. Is it, yeah, there's, I don't know, I don't think that the world has learned yet. It goes on and on and on, and we see what's going on, and we see the Syrian uh, refugees, and what can we do? I have an American passport. Um, I have a country that protects me. I have a congressman. I have. I can go to my senator and say, this is bothering, this is a problem, help me, which we never had. The museum's director, Amy, explains the delicate balance between sharing these stories of survival and celebrating how these people lived after the Holocaust. 
So again, highlighting this focus on how people live and the fact that they did live, that this genocide of Jews was not successful because you have so many survivors and complete tragedy. And we know up until this day, genocides are still happening. But the idea that the fact that we have people living until um, we still have Holocaust survivors alive, of course, that is a concern. This question of what do you do when survivors of a genocide are no longer alive? Who can tell their story? So in some ways, that is where we see ourselves coming in with this museum, with the exhibit that we currently have, is we're helping to tell their story to the next generation, that their story is not going to die with them, that it's going to live on. And again, that's an important component of museums, of artifacts, right? When you have Holocaust deniers or a denier of any genocide, to have evidence, to hear from people. That's why it's so important to record testimony. So um, people can deny, but you, um, I would argue you can't argue with the truth, but um, um, that might be problematic for some. So that's why it's so important for us to have all of this, uh, these recordings, um, and including students. So they too are doing the work of sharing this information with their families and letting people know um, what happened. So we're all playing a role in this idea of remembering and never forgetting. Amy says artifacts from the Holocaust are important in many museums. They help center stories over scale, narrative over numbers. So what I think is so important, and every museum has a different charge, a different goal, um, but what I think is incredible about museums is the ability to connect with visitors and to give them one story, hopefully several stories, but if someone can leave with one story about what they've learned, then I think we've accomplished something. And, and we do that through, and we, meaning I would say museum professionals across the board, do that by putting together artifacts, images, photographs, um, clothing, right? All of the ways in which people live because that's what people can relate to. Telling the story of the Holocaust can be difficult, largely because of its enormity. Six million Jewish people were killed and millions more people were killed during the war itself. For Amy, individual stories help us understand the scale of this tragedy. So there are several museums um, that, especially with the Holocaust, use the example of a teddy bear that, and oftentimes, right, who has a teddy bear? It's children. And the fact that a museum might have a teddy bear, um, it, it might mean that the teddy bear itself survived with the child who had it. And it might also mean that, uh, right, it depends. Um, if you look at different Holocaust museums, they have different teddy bears uh, because they were owned by different children at different times uh, during the 1930s and 1940s. But invariably, what is uh, the same across all of these stories is the teddy bear is tattered. It looks like it has been loved. and But it also invites questions of who is its owner, uh, questions of, when did they get it? Um, did it keep them comforted, especially if they were, uh, as children, separated from their families? And so all of these questions 
are really useful in telling a larger story, especially uh, when you think about children and the Holocaust. These individuals, right, they have inherited the past generation's mistakes, if you will. They have nothing to do with war. And it's this focus on children that I think can be really powerful to highlight um, the larger picture and that people can identify um, with, or many people, I should say, can identify with a teddy bear and having it either had it at one point, um, giving it to children, to relatives, right, as a form of comfort, as a form of celebration, and how we can then interpret that for um, right, this juxtaposition of war and celebration, juxtaposition of soldiers fighting and children um, either literally hiding for their lives or in the in, for the Holocaust in concentration camps. And how can we put these this image of a teddy bear, seemingly um, innocuous, seemingly um, not related, but it helps to tell. Uh, a much broader picture, and you can do that with just one object, which is so amazing, where oftentimes, uh, and which, which is great about a museum, that one object can tell a full story, whereas you might need a full book of hundreds of thousands of words to tell that same story. Amy Weiss is the director of the Museum of Jewish Civilization at the University of Hartford and an assistant professor of Judaic Studies and History. I'm Katie Pellico. More from our recent visit to the museum after a short break. How do museums act as place of discovery, dialogue, and healing where you live? Find us on Facebook and Twitter. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Pellico. This hour, we're looking at how museums are engaging with critical, often complex issues important to the communities they serve. I recently spent an afternoon at the Museum of Jewish Civilization at the University of Hartford. Its director, Amy Weiss, was my guide. She's also an assistant professor of Judaic Studies and History and the director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies. The museum centers Jewish life in America and in Connecticut. There are no direct exhibits about the current war between Hamas and Israel and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Palestine but Amy shared her thoughts about the present moment, including how people are learning about it in real time. What our students need is the education that they're getting from this museum, that they're getting from their classes, just about how to trust sources, how to evaluate a source. Is this true? Um, and oftentimes, it's not just by looking at one source, right? Looking at um, well, is one website reporting this or are several re websites reporting it? What news sources are you going to? Um, is the reporting different? Are there competing narratives? Um, and with history, we often have competing narratives. You can experience, people can experience the same event in many different ways. So it's also using those competing narratives, not isolating them, but using them together to form a more complete picture of what happened. So to say that, yes, one person experienced this, but another person experienced that. So this idea of also thinking about, well, even if we have a document and it says, do not duplicate, do not distribute, is that true, right? If it was typed, it was easy, right? Was it first handwritten and then it was typed? So this idea, do we have one source? Um, 
And in some cases, there, right, there might be just one document. But the idea of, um, right, when if if it's a letter, right, was it written for many people at the same time, uh, right? You're writing to several, perhaps soldiers abroad. Uh, you're writing to several family members abroad. You might be sharing some of the same information. So how do you corroborate that information and using competing sources, multiple sources, not just looking at one source, I think is really important for our students so they can have a good understanding of what is going on, not just in the past, but also in the present. Last week, we spoke to Faisal Salah, the founder and executive director of Palestine Museum U.S. in Woodbridge. He told us politics speaks to the mind and art speaks to the heart. That's something Amy thinks about, too. We hope that visitors that come to the museum are affected by what they see, that they are getting the emotion, that emotion. And again, I'm a historian, so uh, I love facts and figures and a good textbook, but there's something that's often lacking with the sheer information that a textbook provides, and it's often lacking in human emotion. And I don't mean that as a dig to any of my colleagues who are textbook authors, but the idea that how can you convey so much information in such a small amount of time? And with one individual piece of art, there's often an opportunity to convey so much emotion, so much passion about a subject. And that, and right, I think everything is political, that this is, is an exhibit about World War II, both those who fought in it, those who survived the Holocaust, and the overarching message is the importance of democracy and the fight against fascism. So, and I think that is, right, that is a political message, um, right? We don't have banners in here saying that, but yet we are conveying that with the images that we have selected, with the words that people have provided about their own experiences. So I think there's something very important about touching on humans, human lives, how people lived, but also how the humans who are visiting the museum, how are they relating to the information? And then what do they do when they leave? And I think that's something that's really significant about, we hope that this will, for the high school students that come in, for our university students, for the um, community visitors that come, um, what's the charge here? And we hope that it is, again, this remembrance. Do not forget what happened in the past. And I think we're seeing in this present moment this question of um, how the past influences the present moment and how we need to be vigilant to ensure that questions of fascism, questions of hatred are not impacting society. All of this goes back to Amy's work with her students. They're playing a big role in pushing museums and the art of curation forward. I always ask my students to think about as soon as you walk into a museum space, what do you see? What's the lighting like? What's the paint color? What do the walls look like? What information besides text, besides the images, what information is being conveyed? And so, right, are there windows? If there are, right, this idea, some of it is uh, structural. You can't get a, around. Maybe it's, you know, prefabricated. But um, this idea of if there are benches, are they comfortable? Are, are you, this idea that, 
Are you being asked to stay a while? Is it really uncomfortable? And that's only there for the bare minimum until you can continue on if it's a long exhibit, right? So I ask my students to think about all of these um, context clues for thinking about what is the museum trying to convey without words, without images. And, um, and just to give, uh, you know, this example again with the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York, that it's not until you get to the third floor where it's life after the Holocaust that you actually see windows, you see light, literally, the, there are more lights, the paint color is different. And then at one uh, moment, you actually see through the window and see the Statue of Liberty. So it is this very symbolic moment that talking about Jewish life well before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust and after, and focusing on the symbol, uh, symbolic nature of the Statue of Liberty, right? The New Colossus, this poem by Emma Lazarus that's on the base of the statue that's saying, give me your tempest toss, give me your huddled masses, right? This idea of you are welcome here. And that message, um, despite any immigration quotas that existed in the United States, where uh, people were told in no uncertain terms that they were not welcome, that symbolism and the significance of seeing the Statue of Liberty, of knowing that people survived the Holocaust, um, is incredible. And I think those images all together, um, right, it was curated to have that moment and to have that impact. So when people leave that museum or any other, they're taking away all of the objects and all of the surroundings of the museum and not just the placards that they read on the wall. That was Amy Weiss. She's the director of the Museum of Jewish Civilization at the University of Hartford and the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies. She's also an assistant professor of Judaic Studies and History. I'm Katie Pellico. Today's show was produced by myself, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.